Uh, sometimes the battle just comes right to you. Welcome in, everybody, to the Deep Dive on Wednesday night at 7.30. I am your host, Tim, and this is Tim Hatch Live. And make sure that you're hitting that like and subscribe button right away. As we head into 1 Kings chapter 19 and 20, well, we've already been in 1 Kings 19, but now we're going to finish out 19 and cover all of chapter 20 because here's the lesson some of you need to hear right now. Sometimes God picks a fight for you. Why? Because you're in a battle and sometimes you're asleep at the switch and you need to wake up and fight. Your family's at stake. Your peace is at stake. Your future's at stake. Your children's lives are at stake. Fight in Jesus' name. That's where we're going. Welcome in. Let's go to the Kings of Compromise. Yeah, it is part 19 of the Kings of Compromise. Welcome into all of you who are here. If you're here for the first time, I am so delighted to bring this content to you. Get a Bible open if you would, and we will head over to 1 Kings chapter 19. We go through the text, we tap into truth, but before we do any of that, we will pray. Father God, guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Speak to us, lead us. Lord, we ask for wisdom and revelation that we might know you better and fight the battles that you have us to fight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, God is the God of the hills and the valleys, and that is what we're going to learn here from 1 Kings chapter 19 and 20. And the reason why we need to know that is because so much of our lives, so much of our discipleship happens in the battles. Actually, I would say maybe more than any other place in our lives, discipleship happens in the battles. If you're looking at me right now and saying, man, Tim, you look like you've been through a battle yourself. You got these, <laughs> this scar right here. I don't know if you can see it very clearly. It's got four stitches there. Not a big deal. Fell off an e-bike. If you want the whole story, go watch the deep end last from last night. I even put together a video for you to see <laughs> all the things that happened to me. But I'm back. Totally fine. It was not that bad. Thank God. But we are in a battle. Some of you got the scars spiritually, emotionally, mentally, socially. You're worried. You're stressed. You're fearful. You don't have to be. What you have to do is fight. Because that's what God has called you to do. Before we get, though, to that content, we have to finish out 1 Kings chapter 19, picking up from where we left off and going through the text from the, you know, self-pitying Elijah on Mount Horeb, wanting to die, God coming to him and saying, no, you're not going to die. You're going to go and anoint three guys to take over because this is too much for you and... It's not all about you. And I have 7,000 people reserved for myself. And I've got prophets that I can use other than you. Elijah's not all about you. And so we're going to pick up the end of that story because the last thing that we saw was God saying, Elijah, go anoint three other guys to take over. And we got to get there and see what he does in response to God's word to him. So let's go through the text. Alrighty, first Kings chapter 19, verse 19, it says this. So he departed from there. Where's there? Horeb, Mount Sinai, where Elijah had run to. And he found Elisha. This is the first of the three people that Elijah was supposed to anoint to follow him. The son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. 
And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? Okay. First off, you're going to see here that this is not exactly a glorious anointing moment. Like this is not a lie. This is not Samuel with the horn of oil in front of David's brothers and the oil running down his beard. This is not the anointing of Aaron in front of the Israelites and the oil running over his beard. Elijah is given a directive by God earlier, right? Elijah, you're going to anoint Elisha. He'll succeed you. You're going to anoint Haziel, king of Syria. You're going to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. And these people are going to clean up the mess. Don't worry. Okay, it's not all up to you. I've got other people in line. Uh, That is something that Christians have got to remember on a regular basis. And this is why God does not just save you and put you on the waiting list to get to heaven when you die. But he puts you in a church, in a family, in a body of believers, because you have to learn through that experience that it's not all about you. Your personality is not the Christian way to be. Your style of faith is not the only way to have faith, right? The Christian faith is filled up with many different kinds of Christians doing the work of the Lord in different ways. And we are partners and we have to remember that or we will get very isolated and we will look just like the world that loves to isolate and, I, and, and, and sink ourselves into these identification wormholes where we never do anything objectively good for others because we're so obsessed with subjective reality according to ourselves. So Elijah, not exactly like pulling out all the stops here to anoint Elisha. <laughs> he, he, he passes by. That's the first thing that we see in the text here. You know, he, he, he's just walking by him. Uh, he kind of casts his cloak. He throws the cloak on Elisha and that's it. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord or um, God has called me to raise you. You're my son in the faith. You know, there's no Paul-Timothy relationship here. There's no there's no <laughs> real anointed moment here. This is not the angels showing up, the sun shining, the, the bright lights from heaven. This is just Elijah very reluctantly bringing on a partner. <laughs> and I love Elijah, Elisha's response. What does he say? Let me just go say goodbye to mom and dad. And, and then again, even further, Elijah is like, yeah, go ahead. Fine. I don't care. Like, that's literally the text here. Go back. What have I done? Just so you're seeing here that Elijah is still in a funk. How many know that it is totally possible to get stuck in a funk and not get out, even as Christians, sometimes, especially as Christians, you just get stuck in a rut spiritually, emotionally, mentally. You don't want, you almost don't want to get out because your rut has become an excuse for you to remain, uh, inactive. Oh, I can't do that. I have this thing or I can't serve. I have all of these issues or I can't witness because I'm not perfect. And some of you are stuck in the rut. You don't want to get out of the rut because the rut gives you a convenient excuse not to extend yourself. There is a guy in John chapter five that is sitting by the pool of Siloam Jesus passes by him and says, do you want to get well? You would think that a guy who's paralyzed, lame from birth, would want to be well. He'd been there for 38 years. His first response to Jesus is not, yes, I would like to get well. His first response is, I have no man to help me get into the waters. Because there was this superstitious belief that they got into the waters after they were stirred by an angel, they would be healed. So he's filled with excuses and he almost likes his rut. Do you like your rut? Do you like being stuck? Do you like being, you know, where you are spiritually and and don't want to move forward? This is where Elijah is. 
first off, don't beat yourself up because Elijah was there. We, we, we'll, we'll get there at times. I get there. But the point is, is God doesn't let us do that. And God challenges us and God gives us prophets and voices and words to stir us up to action. We're not just going to see this in Elijah's life. We're going to see this big time in Ahab's life in the next chapter. But that's why these two moments tie so well together. Look what it says in verse 21. And he, that is Elisha, returned from following him. And he took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So Elijah does not return to say goodbye to mom and dad. He goes back to literally forfeit his entire future. The reason why is because he's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. That means that he was exceedingly rich. The average family in ancient Israel had one yoke of oxen, maybe one oxen. They've got 12 yokes. That's 24 oxen. This is an exceedingly rich family. Elisha is a rich man. He's a son of great riches. Did you know that God can use rich people? That's okay. Please do not landlock yourself into only only poor people can be saved. You say, well, doesn't James say that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Yes, he has because they need faith. Okay. And yes, riches can undermine faith, but they do not eliminate faith. Some, some of the greatest men of faith, Abraham being one of them, Solomon being another, are men of great means. Nicodemus comes to great faith. Joseph of Arimathea, great faith. The people who provided for Jesus's needs, women who were rich and wealthy, they were people of great faith. Lydia, Acts chapter 16, a woman of great faith. Riches do not eliminate faith. They can hinder, but they do not eliminate faith. By the way, poverty can uh, hinder faith and also not eliminate faith because poverty can say, well, there is no God because I'm suffering so bad. Okay. So the point here though, that I just want to emphasize again is that Elijah, I mean, Elisha is rich. He's got 12 yoke of oxen. And what does he do? He burns the plows and eats the cows. And then he gives the food to all the people. Sometimes we, um, we hesitate to follow God because we have a future that has been laid out to us because of parents or influences from our youth that we don't want to disappoint. We don't want to give up. We don't want to give up where we might go in life. Someone has paved the road for us to go in a certain direction and we don't want to give that up. Some of us want to go in that direction because we see the potential, I don't know, success, fame, fortune, safety, security that it offers, but ultimately it leads us away from God. Elisha does something here that is important. He burns everything up. He destroys it. Um, we should hearken to when Jesus calls the disciples and they leave their nets. They didn't actually burn their nets. Elisha takes it a whole nother step further. And we're seeing something very important here in the life of Elijah that is totally different than the life of, life of Elijah. Elijah is burnt out. He's filled with self-pity. He's not really excited about the ministry anymore. And here's Elisha and he's ready to just destroy everything and follow God's purposes for him. And then notice that it says he assisted Elijah and he's going to assist Elijah for three years. There's going to be a passage in the future of, I think it's in second Kings. It says Elisha who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Literally he washed Elijah's hands. He, he did the servant deal for Elijah for three years. This is how ministry is developed in your life. Okay, you don't develop into a great minister by being celebrated by everybody. The moment you step onto a stage, the moment that you start doing something really cool or exciting or thrilling. You know, God's best servants are developed in the shadows. God's best servants are developed in the dark places of serving when no one sees you washing people's feet, washing people's hands. What did Jesus say? The greatest among you shall be servant of all. He does this for three years. But, but, but what you see now is he's got the, 
the passion to burn away his future, to surrender what he had coming to him. Uh, he has the ambition to run after this forlorn prophet Elijah. And then he has the, the um, endurance to serve in the shadows for three years. A lesson for those who might be in the Elijah syndrome right now. You just feel like, you know, your life is going nowhere and your faith is suffering and you're fading and the excitement is gone. Okay, let me just give you a little bit of a heads up. Never neglect the next generation. This moment is a powerful picture for churches and for Christians about the importance of being soul winners and always being about the people who are coming in the doors or the people that God is bringing into our lives, whether we are in the church or outside of the church. That next generation of faith, they are going to be the people who emblazon your faith. They set you on fire because there is nothing more passionate many times than a new Christian. You have to be in church to experience this too. A church, by the way, that preaches the gospel and sees people saved and baptized and born again and then, and then get discipled. And their, their faith, their, new, their newness to the movement is what spurs you on. Do not cater your life to those who you've known because of comfort, because of familiarity. Familiarity can be the death of faith. Do not cater your ministry only to those who you are comfortable with. Get to know somebody that is new to the faith. Get to know somebody who's not in the faith yet who might be used, uh, who, might, who God might use you to reach for the faith. This is, there's nothing more life-giving. And this is what Elijah needs to see. Elisha here is the anti-Elijah. Elijah wants to die. Elisha wants to die to himself for God's purposes. Elijah's done with God's plan. Elisha's ready to give everything up for God's plan. This is a huge moment. And some of you, you're stagnated in faith because you never get involved in around these people. And that's why a church where people are getting saved and reached with the gospel, you want to, you want to sink your life into that environment. And, and it's not about where you serve. It's about the fact that you are serving in a place where people are coming to know Christ. By the way, um, there's two names here, right? Elijah and Elisha. And, and this is a transitionary moment. In the Elijah period, we have the Lord is God. That's his name. Elisha's name is the Lord saves. Now, this is important because when Jesus comes along, he refers to John the Baptist as an Elijah figure. He is a, a, he is a forerunner. As Elijah is to Elisha, John the Baptist is to Jesus. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Um, Jesus in J almost every gospel, I think all four gospels, he refers to John the Baptist as the Elijah uh, who was to come. And then in the book of Revelation, and this is important, there are two prophets that show up. I think it's in Revelation 14. Don't quote me. No, no, no. Revelation 11. Two prophets that show up. One is obviously a Moses figure, and the other one is obviously an Elijah figure. And then, you know, Wormwood comes out of the earth and all this stuff, the Battle of Armageddon, and then it's over. Well, you have, again, the, pre, the, the forerunner of Christ, the forerunner of God's salvation is always an Elijah figure. So I'm not denouncing or rebuking Elijah. I'm just saying that what Elijah needed to learn personally is something that we need to learn personally. We need to learn personally is we are not the center of God's plan. We are here to show people Jesus. When we show people Jesus, he saves people. When we make our churches, our ministry, our sermons, pastors, if you're listening, 
our small groups, our life groups, our experiences around life, when we make it about Jesus, Jesus saves. That's what he does. And then people get saved and they kind of spur us on into greater things. They keep us running. I, I'm always asking our creative arts team for testimony videos of people who have been radically saved, healed, transformed recently, because it spurs the old saints onward. So are you an Elijah? Are you holding on to your hurts, your hangups, your personal issues? Are you holding on to some, you know, disappointment from, I don't know, years ago? And you're doing it now, not because it literally hurts you, but it's been, but it's become a very convenient excuse for you to never move forward, to never raise up anybody else, to never put yourself out there again. I get it. It's scary. You were hurt. You had a disappointment. We all have, but we need to move on. And this is exactly what God is going to do with Elijah through Elisha. By the way, Elisha will outdo Elijah in miracles. He will outdo Elijah in the time that he serves the Lord. He will outdo Elijah on, in, in pages of scripture. He would do, outdo Elijah in every area. But the point is, and, and by the way, Elijah will make another big comeback. And I think it is in no small, <clears throat> no small uh, fact that it was due to Elisha now being part of his life. So anyway, I spent too much time on this already. Let me continue on because this is going to tie nicely into chapter 20 and we're going to get there now. It says in verse 20, uh, verse one of chapter 20, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. 32 kings were with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. Now, this is incredibly important for you to see. Look at the response of Ahab. What an absolute shill. Verse four, and the king of Israel answered, as you say, my Lord, imagine your enemy coming to say your silver and your gold is mine. Your best wives and children are mine. And you just say, all right, I'm good with that. <laughs> what are we seeing here? We are seeing the character of Ahab. And there's something I'm going to point out that is incredibly important. But here's what happens. As you say, my Lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Now, the reason why Ahab responds this way is because Ahab wants political alliance with Ben-Hadad. He wants the, the benefits of the political alliance, but he doesn't want what comes next, which is the cost of those political alliances. And this is why you never negotiate with the enemy. The enemy will never be satisfied. The enemy does not just want your peace. He wants your children's peace. He doesn't just want your marriage. You know, this is what the enemy does. He comes and he says, just get rid of this marriage because it's not, it's not helping you anymore. And so you don't think about your kids. You don't think about the next generation. You don't think about the, the community in which you live. You don't think about the person that you're going to divorce. You think about yourself. And so you say, well, yeah, that's right. I need to be happy. And so you search for that thing to be happy. And then before you know it, your kids are harmed and other people are harmed, right? You, you, the enemy does not come and take territory and say, I'm satisfied. We've done enough damage to your life. That's good. No, he comes back for more. He always comes back for more. This is why the Bible says the grave is never satisfied because the grave is death and the, and the God of death is the devil. He, he, he rules through death. In other words, he intimidates through death, right? He doesn't rule death anymore. Christ is in charge of death. He has the keys of hell and death. <clears throat> but the point is that 
um, the devil does not does not ever stop negotiating with you. Verse five says this. The messengers came again and said, thus says Ben-Hadad, I want, I'm sorry, I sent to you saying, deliver to me your silver and gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time and they shall search your house and the house of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. (laughs) So what does Ben-Hadad do? He ups the ante. I'm not just coming now for your wives and your children and your gold and your silver. I'm coming tomorrow and I'm taking everything you love. By the way, that's what the devil wants. He wants to take everything that you love. He wants to take everything that you hold dear. Some people say riches and fortune are terrible. No, it's a heart and attitude toward them. They can be a blessing and a gift from God. Children are a blessing and gift from God. They can be, they can be idolatrous to us, yes, but they are a blessing and gift from God. And, and, and the things that we love in life are not necessarily idols. And the devil wants to take it away. He wants to use it. He wants to tear it away. The Jesus, uh, Jesus said the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And we have to understand that negotiating with him and saying, okay, in one area, is just asking for disaster in that area eventually. So a couple of things that you have to understand about this context. There's going to be a nameless prophet that God uses that is not Elijah or Elisha. Again, God is saying, I can use anyone. It's not about Elijah. It's not about the one person that's central to this segment of first Kings. Uh, secondly, what we are learning about Ahab, and this is so important that you hear this. Ahab is a follower. If here's what Ahab is, <clears throat> he's a guy who will listen to whoever's talking the loudest. There's a lot of Christians that are like Ahab. They are functional Ahabs. If Ben Hadad says, I want stuff. Ahab says, okay. If Jezebel says, kill Elijah, Ahab's like, okay. If Elijah says, call your prophets to Mount Carmel, Ahab's like, okay. It doesn't matter who's speaking to Ahab. He is a total shill. He's a follower. And he just listens to whoever speaks the loudest. There's a lot of Christians like that. Whoever speaks the loudest and the most repetitive gets their attention. And you need to examine right now your heart. Are you that kind of person? Who do you listen to? Do you just listen to whoever's loudest in your life? Because this might be why God allows certain battles to come into your life. He's trying to shake you out of that. He's trying to get you to stop being a spineless wimp. He's going to put you in places where it's going to demand courage and demand you stepping up to the plate and fighting. I'm getting ahead of myself. We got to continue. Verse 7. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. See, that's the body of believers there working together, telling him, wake up, Ahab, you're a moron. Stop this. So (laughs) verse nine. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord, the king, all that you first demanded of your servant, I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, the gods do to me and more, so, more also, by the way, there's the same phrase from uh, Jezebel in the last chapter, the gods do to me and more so also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for a handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. <laughs> this is incredible because finally Ahab grows a pair. Sorry if that offends you. But it's true, right? That, that, that last line, let not him <clears throat> who, who puts his armor on uh, act as if he's the guy who's taking it off. Because in ancient warfare, you only took off your armor if you won. 
Otherwise, you were dead. <laughs> so this is finally the moment where Ahab, you know, crosses the Rubicon. He's like, enough. This is, but how did he get there? The enemy upped the ante. He got consent from the elders of his people, his faith community, as weak and as terrible as the faith community was. And they advised him and they commended him and they encouraged him. And he said, enough is enough. What will it take for you to say enough is enough over the fights that the devil keeps trying to bring up into your life? And I'm talking about the spiritual fight. I'm talking about because everything external is really about our internal and how we address the external is the fruit of our internal. And God is asking you to fight by allowing these pressures to come in. And at some point you've got to step up to the plate and say, that's enough. Okay. We're, we've, we're done here. We're going to fight. Um, so look at the next chapter, the next verse, verse 12, it says, uh, when Ben Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. So the battle is on and all throughout Kings. And I've said this already. Ahab is a follower. He is not a fighter. That, that's the first thing that we're supposed to see. He's <laughs> the true son of Adam. Like, like I said, Jezebel speaks. He listens. Elijah speaks. He listens. Ben Hadad speaks here. He listens. Adam was supposed to keep and guard the garden. That's chapter two of Genesis. Chapter three, a, a serpent shows up and starts having a conversation, questioning God's word in front of Adam, because the Bible says he was right there watching it happen. You know, he should have been on guard. He should have been fighting. He should have stomped that serpent on the head. He should have done what Jesus does eventually come and do and stomp, crush the serpent's head. But Adam should have done that. And instead of fighting, He's just passive. He's a follower. You can't be a follower and a Christian. You cannot be a follower and a Christian. There's no such thing. And I'm talking about, I know, follow Christ. But even Christ was a fighter. He was a spiritual warrior. You cannot follow him and not fight. I know you want passivity. I know a lot of Christians, not all of you. You want passivity. You want peace. You want calm. Hear me. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. So, so the point here is that the Lord is really forcing Ahab into battle. That's exactly what he's doing. I, I wonder who here needs to fight and you're not fighting. There's something you're supposed to face and you're not facing it. There's someone you're supposed to talk to and you're not talking to them. Passivity is not an option and has never been an option for God's people. What you see here is a king who has surrendered his birthright Kings are supposed to fight for Israel. That's, that's why they wanted a king. If you remember in 1 Samuel, let, us, let God give us a king that will go out and fight our battles, right? Well, Ahab is literally in the position of, king, of being the king, but he's not in the function of being a king. And by the way, you say, well, good. I don't have to fight because I'm not a king. You are a royal priest in Christ. He has made you kings and priests. That is who you are. And some of you need to hear what has happened to Ahab. He has no seriousness, no soberness about the battle. Let me just tell you plain and simple. The devil is serious about the battle. Are you? First Peter chapter five, verse eight, be sober minded, be what? Watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to what? 
devour, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There, there is a fight going on. To be ignorant of it is to surrender to it. To, uh, to pretend it's not there is to almost ask to be defeated by it. By the way, who writes 1 Peter chapter 5? Peter. Peter knew a few things about being lethargic, didn't he? It was Peter who at the Lord's last supper said, I'll never deny you. I'll, I'll never do, even if I have to die with you. It was Peter who brought a sword with him to the Garden of, to the garden of Gethsemane, yes? And the moment that the battle starts, we see Peter sleeping. He makes a foolish decision, a rash decision to, cut, to, to fight when he shouldn't. We see Peter um, distancing himself. He follows far behind as they arrest Christ and bring him to the courtyard of Caiaphas. Then he is warming himself by the fires of the crowd. And that's when the young girl asks him if he's a Galilean. And then he's denying Christ. Then he's a heap of weeping ruins. Like this trajectory was just sharp. So Peter knows a thing or two. When he talks about the fact that there's a devil that's prowling around, there's this enemy that you may not see but sees you and hates you and is coming for you take peter's word for it because he was he experienced the collateral damage of apathetic spirituality he's a living illustration that the moment you think you can take it easy in the christian faith you will lose you cannot take raising your kids easy you cannot take um cultivating a godly marriage easy you cannot take fighting for your purity and your holiness easy the, life is not easy and everything in life that is worthwhile is extra hard in fact the more worthwhile it is the harder it is <laughs> your future is worth fighting for your job is worth fighting your hope is worth fighting for your your personal character and integrity these things matter. They are going to be attacked. And notice what Peter says at the end of that. He says, after, after you have suffered for a little while, it's not going to come before that. You're not going to get what Peter talks about until after you've gone through the suffering and the battle. You're, then, and only then will you get restoration, confirmation, strengthen, strengthening and establishing in Christ. The, the battle is not meant to defeat you. The battle is meant to strengthen you and build you. We'll get to that in just a moment. Okay, verse 13, behold a prophet. And again, nameless prophet because Elijah made it about himself and it's not about just, just Elijah. A prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, thus, the, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? He answered, you. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. This is incredible. God is literally saying, Ahab, fight. Fight, 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 fight. <laughs> Have you seen this enemy? Look at what you're facing. Some of you don't want to face. You want to hide. You want to be an ostrich. Stick your head in the sand. You can't. If you're a Christian, you cannot stick your head in the sand. You have to keep your head up. Be watchful. Be weary. Look out, your enemy is prowling. Have you seen your enemy? Are you facing your enemy or are you trying to hide? 
against, uh, you know, behind the cloak of, you know, I'm just a Christian. I'm just, pe- I'm peaceful. I don't want to stir the pot. Sometimes you got to stir the pot. Then he says, so, so that you might know, look at the, the, the point of the battle. And this is an important discipleship um, uh, point. It says, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is uh, reeking of Exodus terminology. Exodus, all over Exodus. Exodus 6, Exodus 7, 10, 14, 16. I will uh, take you to be my people. This is Exodus 6, 7. And I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And time and time again, throughout the process of God delivering Israel, he keeps saying to them, and I'm doing this that you might know who I am. What is the battle for? Discipleship. What is the fight for? For you to be formed in faith and in the faith of a God who is who he is. See, the problem with your fight right now is that you don't know God as he is in that situation. You don't know the God who can provide you financially. That's why you don't tithe because you've never seen that. You've never taken that battle mental battle over your money to say, God, it's not my money, it's your money. And so you always hold back because you don't want to see, you don't want, you haven't, I don't know what it is. You're just not fighting the fight that God wants you to fight. And so you don't see the God that he wants you to see himself as he is because you don't fight this battle. Some of you with your, your, your possessions, some of you with your children, you're not fighting the battle. You're not seeing that God can fight this battle and win this battle. Also, how does God say that the battle is going to be won? And this is a key turn in the book of Kings. Let me build this up by saying up to this point, everything is about Kings, right? It's first and second Kings. Um, Now we've seen prophets show up, but now, and we're going to see this theme carry forward from here on out in the books of first and second Kings. Who's going to win the battle? Ahab wants to know verse 14. Well, what does God say through the prophet? He says the servants. The servants of the governors. So align them. Muster the servants. The word here in Hebrew is na'ar. Um, this is the same word that God uses in 1 Samuel 17 when Saul talks about David and he says, you are just a youth, a na'ar. You're just a, you're just a young servant boy. You're not able to fight this giant. David says, don't worry about it. God's with me. Like, this is incredibly important because kings need to remind me need to be reminded here that they are servants of the people and of God. And it's an important point for you, spiritually speaking. If you want to be a warrior for God, learn that you are a servant of God. You are either a servant of God or you're a servant of man. And you can't be both. Now, I know we're supposed to serve others. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about serve for approval. So are you a servant of man? Because if you're a servant of man, you will not be a servant of God. If you are a servant of God, you will never have to be a servant of man. You will influence man, you will impact man, but you will never serve them. And again, the serving in the sense of slavery to them. You're a slave to their opinions. You're a slave to what they want you to be and do and become. Serve God. This is how God wins the battle in our lives. When we surrender our lives to serving him and then he empowers our lives to win in him. Anyway, going on in the book, in the chapter six, verse 16. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. He and the 32 Kings who helped him, the servants of the governors of the districts went out first and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts and they reported to him, my men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they've come out for war, take them alive. So, okay. First things first, 
Ben Haydad is drunk. He's having a, um, I don't know, a party with the 32 Kings. They're swilling beer and liquor and they're getting liquored up. And, and here's the thing that we're supposed to see. And, and, he, and he speaks like he, isn't, he has no brains, right? If they come over, please take them. And if they come off of fighting, take them. Like he's drunk. Here, here's the advantage every Christian has, every practicing Christian has in a world that hates their faith and their practices they're going to destroy themselves. They're, the indulgences of the flesh eventually destroy the flesh. They weaken the flesh. So when you see culture hating on you, just be faithful to the Lord. It's going to work out for you in the long run. I guarantee you. I'll give you a personal illustration. I had a close relative who was a lifelong atheist. His parents were atheists. He was never going to surrender to the Lord. It was very obvious, no matter how many times people talk to him about the Lord. And he was married to a believer in, in our family. And, and this believing person in my family eventually told us that later in life, real late in life, the atheist husband, they had divorced. He came back. He said, I got to be honest with you. I look at your family and I look at your life and I can see that this faith works for you. He still did not come to Christ, but he acknowledged that his life was a mess. And, and there's more to it than I'm telling you, but he acknowledged that faith works. Faith in Christ works. So I know you're facing enemies. The deep end, I know if you watch it, you get all worked up. I'm just pointing out to you what's going to happen. Don't follow the course of this world. They're doomed to destruction. It's doomed. Follow Christ. He will preserve you and protect you and save you through it. Going on, it says this. They went out of the city, uh, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen, and the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots uh, and struck the Syrians with a great blow. So there's a battle, and the battle is won, and this won through the servants. But notice what happens, and, and, and this is important. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. The battle's not over. Just that part of the battle was won. And I make this point here up on the screen. The purpose of our battles is to strengthen us, not to defeat us. I've already kind of alluded to that, but it needs to be re reinforced here because you're going to go in Christian life from one battle to another. And when you get one battle won, expect the next one to show up. <laughs> the old preacher said, you're either coming into a battle, going through a battle, or you've just left a battle. There's those three stages of the Christian life, and there's no other stage. You're either coming into a battle, going through a battle, or you've just left a battle. And the battles change, and the seasons change, with, and the battles change with the seasons. But Ahab, I've shown you now that you can be strong through the servants, right? This is the point that I'm trying to teach you. But it's not over. The war is not over, and the war is never over for Christians. So verse 23, it says this. The servants of the king of Syria said to him, these gods, I'm uh, sorry, their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain and surely we will, we will be stronger than they and do this, remove the Kings each from his post and put commanders in their places and muster an army like the army that you have lost horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain and surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Notice the estimation of the enemy here, because in the ancient world, gods were considered territorial and national. So Israel's gods were gods of the hills, territory. Oh, he's a hill god. So we're going to take the battle to the valleys where our gods are dominant and we're going to win. And this is a stupid calculation. Number one, they're believing that the Israel, God's, God of Israel is limited and he is not. Number two, they believe their large numbers will eventually overwhelm the smaller numbers of Israel. And that is also not true because he is not a God limited by man's limitations or Israel's limitations. He is the eternal God. 
by the way, this is 100% true, whether you believe in Christ or the Bible or not, because there's no one on this earth right now that worships the God of the Syrians. There's a bunch of Jews. There's a whole bunch of Jews all around the world, and they are the movers and the shakers of the world, whether you believe it or not, because God has chosen them, <laughs> and, his God is, and their God is real. And so this is, you know, the progressive revelation of God that is being shown throughout the Old Testament. You know, he is the God, not just of this regional locale in, in um, the Middle East, this little New Jersey-sized state of Israel. He's not only that God of that area. He's the God of the world, the heavens and the earth. He is the God that contains, that, that controls all the other nations. And this is where your faith has to be continually challenged, where God will put you in battles that you do not want to face so that you can learn that God is also God over that battle. He is God over that challenge. He is God over that area that you do not want to submit to uh, or submit in. Verse 26, let's move on. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel camped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And again, this is just drawing the battle lines here. It's a small army against a big army. And it says this, verse 28, And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude in your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Again, the point of the battle, friends, don't miss this is that they might know, Israel and the nations might know, that he's the God of all things. He's the God of the hills. He's the God of the valleys. He's the God of everything in between. Your battles ultimately are not really about you. They're about the glory of God. They are about other people, whether they be your children or your friends or your family members or your neighbors or your coworkers. That battle that you're going through, whether it be cancer or financial struggles or relational struggles or whatever it is, it's not about you. Take yourself out of the equation, your glory, your reputation. Take that out. Put God's in and then fight. Because if you fight for the glory of God, you're going to win. Even if you lose, you're going to win because you can die for the glory of God. You can suffer for the glory of God. This is how Christianity took the world over, by the way. When Christians refused to bow the knee to Caesar and would rather be burned alive, cast to the lions, uh, speared through, crucified, burned at the stake. They chose that over the temporary peace of this life. And they literally set the world ablaze for the glory of God. You cannot defeat a people who live for the glory of God because they can even die for his glory. You got it? And in your life too, your battle is not really about you. It's about the glory of God being visible through you. Verse 29. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled in the city of Aphek and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. This is uh, to hearken back to Jericho. You remember the walls fell in Jericho. That's what we're supposed to see here because it should be total destruction of Ben-Hadad and his army, but it doesn't happen that way. Ahab is a fool. <laughs> Let's go on. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered the inner chamber of the city. And his servant said to him, behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put up sackcloth. Uh, let us put sackcloth around our waist and our rope and ropes on our heads, and we go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So this is a ruse by the king of Ahab, uh, the king of Syria, and his servants. 
Ah, we hear that these Israelites, they're kind of merciful. They don't like to kill everybody. And they probably heard these reports because they never did wipe out all the nations of Canaan. And that's why they have these problems that they currently have being influenced by these all these other nations. And so they're saying, well, you know, they've been merciful to a lot of nations before. Let's see if we can play on that. So they did. They tied sackcloth, verse 32, around their waist. They put ropes on their heads. And they went to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. Now... <laughs> Most insane line in the Bible. This would be up in the top 10. Look at what Ahab says. This is a guy who has just attacked you twice, who has come to take your wives and your children and all that you love. And Ahab hears that his (laughs) vicious enemy is still alive. And he says, does he still live? He is my brother. (laughs) You just want to slap your forehead over that line. This is a spiritual corruption that I do not know many people measure up to. This is the, the blindness of Ahab. This is the, the shallowness of this man. Because he wants that political allegiance to still work in his favor. He goes, verse 33, goes on. I got to move on. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him and said, yes, he is your brother. <laughs> It's like, yeah. Oh, is he? He's, oh, I guess that means he likes him. Okay, yes, he is your brother. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wink, wink. He's your brother. And then they said, "Go and bring him." Then he said, "Go and bring him." Then Ben Hadad, ben Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben Hadad said to him, "The cities my father took from your father are restored, and you may establish your bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria." And Ahab said, "I will let you go on these terms." So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Ahab wants to do play both sides of the fence. He wants God to save him. Well, really, I don't even know if he wanted God to save him because it was God that had to pick the fight for him and put him in the fighting position. So, but now that he's got the victory, he wants the victory that God gives and he wants the prosperity that he thinks Ben Hadad can give. You can't play both sides of the fence. It's not going to work. And this is a ludicrous moment. Like I said, top 10 insane statements in the Bible. This is up there. It might be top five. I don't know. Maybe it's top three. Let me know in the comments below what you think. But anyway, verse 35, it says this. A little illustration here to show you how stupid Ahab is. And it's a very strange story. Verse 35. And a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he cried to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle. and Behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. Okay. Strange story. Another strange story with a lion killing a prophet who wouldn't obey the Lord, Lord's word fully. The reason why is because like we talked about, I think when we were in chapter 13 of first Kings is... Everyone is subjected to obedience to the word of the Lord, even the prophets. The prophets are not given special allowances to disobey in certain areas. It's going to cost them. It will cost Ahab his life and his kingdom because he did not fully obey the word of the Lord in concerning Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad should have been struck down and Ahab's trying to negotiate, you know, getting bizarre space at the, at the harvest festival in, in Damascus. And, 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 and so this is another picture that the prophets are subject to the word of the Lord. No one is above it. Verse 40, here's how Ahab responds to the little parables told by the prophet here. It says, and as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. So I was supposed to guard this guy and this guy didn't look at him. You know, it was his life or my life. And I looked away for a moment and he was gone. Okay. 
The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You, have sell, you yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand, the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went out, went, went to his house, vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. So we're given another picture here of, of the character of Ahab. And it's not good. The illustration is that this prophet did not fully obey the voice of the Lord, and he's going to suffer for it. Now, Ahab, as you call it, as you see it in me, so it's going to happen to you. How many know this is so true for you and it's so true for me? We always see our sins and our failures better in other people. (laughs) We always see where we fail so much clearer in the failures of others that are similar to our failures. Remember when Nathan the prophet confronted David after he had killed Uriah and stolen Bathsheba, his wife? And Nathan comes up with a story and he says there was this king with a bunch of flocks and goats and he had a guest and he went down and took the one little sheep from the one guy who had one sheep and killed it and served it to his guest. And David leaps to his feet in righteous indignation and says, so must the man pay back fourfold and he should be judged fully. And Nathan's like, that's you. Isn't it amazing how we can see the failures in other people who is called psychologists call it projection. And I believe it's huge in the political sphere and it's huge in our culture where we are hardest on the people that we are most like we judge the sins on others that we most often commit. And so you, you've got to watch out for this in your own life. Who are you hardest on? Because it might be the very area where God needs change to happen in you. That's the text. Let's tap into truth because there's a lot to be had and I've got only a few moments to share it with you, but they're good points. Let's go. All right, tapping into truth. Here's the point. God has ordained a warrior in you. And the reason why is because there is much, uh, because much of life is a battle against you. You are at war. It's just a matter of whether or not you choose to believe it. Do not be an Ahab. He was willing to compromise his family and wealth to avoid fighting. Oh, you want to take my wives and my children? Sure, no problem. Oh, you're going to come and take everything? You're going to come and take my PlayStation 5? Oh my gosh, now it's on. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Don't do this. Some of you have ceded ground to the enemy because you think that there's peace to be had by avoiding the battles around you. There is no peace. This is a battle for the church's soul as well. American churches need to wake up to the battle that's all around them. And we need to pick the fight. We need to stop being passive like Adam and Ahab. And remember, people are not our enemy. But lies are our enemy. Mistruths, and there's a difference between lies and mistruths. A lie is an outright falsehood. And a mistruth is you take the truth and you twist it like the serpent did to Eve in the garden. And... And as the serpent and as the, the tempter did to Jesus <clears throat> from the Temple Mount. So there's a battle to be had against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. There is a battle to be had, as 1 Peter 2.11 says, against the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls. There is a battle to be had against what 2 Corinthians 10 talks about, arguments lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and every thought that doesn't obey Christ. 
And these are warfare passages. People are not the enemy, but these ideas and these passions and these spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places are. You do have an enemy. No, no, no. The other political party is not your enemy. They might be wrong, but they're not your enemy. The person who is indoctrinating your kids is not your enemy. They are sorely mistaken and captives of the devil's wiles, but they're not your enemy. It's the force behind the physical that is our enemy. And notice it is a, it is a spiritual enemy. It is an internal enemy, the passions of our flesh, and it's a mental enemy, the strongholds of the mind, the arguments against the knowledge of God. So you've got to take the, you've got to take up the battle or you are a sitting duck. You cannot, you cannot afford to not fight. So, so what does Paul say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2? He says, share in suffering as what? As a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Then he says, there's some conditions here. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim to pl- is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he completes, ac- competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought, to f- who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think of what I say for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. In other words, there's a battle going on and you need to be aware of it and you need to fight it. And you need to stop entangling yourself in things that keep you away from the battle. Not everything that is good is a necessary thing for you, Christian. You've got to identify the things that take away your spiritual strength because you need to fight the real battles that need winning. You've got to fight the real battles that are worth it. Some married people fight over ridiculous things. You need to stop fighting over ridiculous things. You need to fight the battles that are real, the spiritual forces of wickedness that are coming against you against your kids. Some, some business leaders need to stop fighting the little battles with their staff and start fighting the bigger battles of the, the, the big picture of your company, your purpose, your mission, your, your, what, what are you here for? Jesus talks about <clears throat> that the kingdom of heaven has to be um, considered before you join up, right? He says, he says, count the cost. And he, he uses two illustrations in Luke 14. He says, a builder who wants to build a tower, doesn't he sit down to first count the cost and see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, he, he's going to lay a foundation that's going to be left there. And then the next illustration is, or what about a king who's going out to war? Will he not first see if he's got the troops necessary to win? The two illustrations, building and fighting, building and fighting. You got to build a tower, you got to win a war. And it's amazing because Nehemiah talks about this. He's building the walls of Jerusalem. And the scripture says that he had each of the builders with a sword strapped to the side. And then he had um, them with the trowel in their hands. So there's building and fighting to be done in every Christian's life. What are you building? And what are you fighting for? Where are your energies? And this is important for this very reason, because the battlefield can be a place of exponential discipleship. Exponential is the important term there. Like God will multiply your spiritual development if you get on the battlefield and fight. A lot of Christians want to grow, but they don't want to fight. And you don't fight. You don't grow without the fight. What, what battleship, what discipleship lessons did Ahab fail to learn? He, he failed to learn that the enemy is playing for keeps. There's no negotiation here. He failed to learn that the enemy does not relent. He failed to learn that this world does not actually give you the prosperity it promises you. He failed to learn that God's word is not to be trifled with or taken lightly. These are the discipleship lessons that Ahab failed to learn because he didn't fight all the way through. Your, fa- your battle is your discipleship program. You do not just grow in Christ because you sit down with other believers, open the Bible, and go verse by verse through the Bible. You grow in Christ in the fight. 
Why do you need battles, by the way? A couple points. You need battles because they keep you sharp and humble, dependent on God's strength. Number two, you need battles because they are bigger than you. They keep you from an overly inward focus in life. How many Christians are right there? You're so self-absorbed because you never do anything other than for yourself. And God is asking you to serve or to seek ways to serve others. And you are on the sidelines because you've got so many issues. Again, the guy at the pool of Siloam. Well, I have no man. Well, all these people. Stop it. Fight the fight that is around you for the sake of others. This is a great way for you to get outside of yourself. Number three, you need battles because spiritual lethargy will hurt you and those around you. They'll hurt your family. They'll hurt your loved ones. They'll hurt, they'll hurt your children, your spouse. And then number four, you need battles because there's more of God to discover. There's a discipleship process in the battle. What, what do we do, by the way, in the battle? Well, we learn that God is God over everything. As in this text, it teaches us he is the God of the hills and the valleys. Okay, now that's a, that is a merism. There's a, it's a Hebrew term, merism, which means it chooses the extremes of, of one um, context. So hills and valleys are the extremes of topography in ancient Israel. Um, <clears throat> God is the God of heaven and earth, the merism, heaven, earth. He is, and that means that he is the God of completeness, everything, right? So merisms in Hebrew refer to everything in between. So let me give you a couple of examples for you. God is the God of your ups and your downs. He's still God when you're down. Someone needs to hear that. He's still God when you're down. He's the God of your victories. He's the God of your defeats, your challenges. He's the God of where you're not winning. It's still him in charge. He's the God of your wins and your losses. He's the God of the glory. He's the God of the cross. Martin Luther had a lot to say about this, the theology of the glory, which was that Christianity is here to bless you and glorify you and lift you up and build you up. And that is in some ways very true. The scripture says in Psalms, he, he bends down to make me great. But there's also the theology of the cross. That's what, that's what Luther introduced to the church. The theology of the cross is that you suffer well for Christ and therein, is there, therein lies discipleship, not just in our glory, but in our cross. Then he's the God of our advancement. He's also the God of our punishment. He's the God who loves us enough to punish us. Let me put it in a more practical timeline, linear terms for you. He's the God of Sunday, but he's also the God of Saturday and Monday. Hello. He's the God of the days that you don't show up at church. There's a lot of pastors, preachers, teachers who will teach you that God is here to bless you and prosper you. And that's it. No, he's also the God who's here to punish you, to disciple you, to discipline you, to gets you to get outside of you, to focus on things other than you. He doesn't do this to defeat you. He does this to discipleship and develop you. Disciple and dis develop you. He does this to build you up in your holy faith so that you can win the war and you can finish well and you can receive the crown of righteousness that Paul says is waiting for everybody who loves his appearing. And that's the show. I'm glad that you guys were here. If you would do me a favor, like, subscribe, share. That really does help the channel, even if you don't believe it. Support the channel through all the apps, Cash App or TimHashLive.com support. I'm so very uh, blessed and honored that you shared some time with me tonight, and I hope that this content helped you. What battle do you need fighting? Fight it. Maybe you need a partner in prayer. Get into a gospel preaching church. Find people that you can relate to so that you can strengthen them, they can strengthen you. But we're in a war. It's not against people, it's against those ideas and those fleshly desires and the spiritual forces of wickedness around us.
Fight well, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. God bless you, and have a great night. 